This is the Byron Bledsoe Podcast, Senior Pastor of C3 Church in Orlando, Florida. Thank you so much for checking out today's message. We hope this word encourages you and inspires you. Let's jump into the message. Hey, thank you for joining us today at C3 Online. Today we're beginning a brand new series, and it's a series where we're going to talk about the Bible. We're going to look at the Bible and ask the question, is it a relic or is it reliable? Hebrews chapter 4 says this, For the Word of God, talking about the Bible, is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing the soul and the spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And we read verses like that, but this morning I just, I just want to pause. And I want to ask the question, do you really think the Bible is the Word of God? Like you think about all the years of history, all that's happened in human history, everything that's taken place, how do we know that the book we hold today is actually the Word of God? And I think that's important because otherwise, why, why are you watching today? Why are you engaged online with the church? Why, why do we even do this whole church thing? It's all based on one book, seriously? One book that for generations, for thousands of years, we have said is the Word of God. But I think the pushback maybe that you have sometimes, the pushback that we all have sometimes is, how do we know? I mean, do we really think that what we have today is anything close to what the original writings were? And the original writings were written by people and we're told it was divinely inspired by God. But how do we know? And so we tend to sometimes, I think, doubt the Bible. And when we do that, have you ever noticed that people often try to prove the Bible by using the Bible? If somebody says, well, hey, how do you know the Bible is the Word of God? Well, it says in Hebrews 4.12, for the Word of... Okay, any book can make any claim it wants about itself. So how do we really know? Can we, can we look outside the Bible? Is there any historical context that, that would reveal to us whether it's a relic or whether it's really reliable? So this morning, we launched with Bible, Hebrews chapter 4, but I want to go outside the Bible this morning and just... Today, kind of just share some information from history that may help you, help me, help us discover, is this actually the Word of God? What do we have in our hands? How do we know that it's legitimate? And how do we know that from sources outside the Bible, not just taking the word for it from the Bible? And I need to tell you, this this is going to feel a little bit different today, because I'm going to... I'm going to share information. It's going to be in some ways an information dump, but a good dump. It's going to be an information dump where I'm going to share some things with you that maybe you haven't known from history, some things that I've discovered. There there is voluminous research uh, on how the Bible factors in and the history of the Bible. And I've learned so much and gleaned so much for this message from people like Josh McDowell, Chris Brown, Lee Strobel, Piper and MacArthur, Phillips, on and on. There's so much research out there. But from the beginning of human time, there has been and has traveled throughout history a lie. And the same lie has been told over and over and over again because 
this lie works. And, and there's some lies that I think maybe we've bought into and believed without even recognizing it. This is the lie that we're told. It's what feeds our doubts. It's what leads our thoughts. And the lie is this. God's word, if it is that, can't really be trusted. From the beginning, in the garden, the enemy approaches Eve, and, and what he says to Eve is simply, God didn't really say that, did he? God didn't really say you can't eat the fruit. God didn't mean that. And so that, that wrestling that we have of, I, I don't know that it can be trusted. I, I don't think it's actual. I, I don't think it's legitimate. Has been a question that's been asked and a lie that's been told from the beginning of time. We also tend to struggle when it comes to the Bible because we're told the Bible we have today is completely different than what was originally written. It's not even, not even the same. I remember when I was in first grade, Miss Fisher's class, one of the greatest teachers ever. I remember the day, I remember the day I was introduced to this game, and you may be familiar with this game, where we were all around the perimeter of the classroom, and Miss Fisher whispered a phrase into the first student's ear, and then it would be passed all the way around the room, and I don't remember what the phrase was, I don't remember where I was in the line, what I remember is the phrase that the last person that heard it said was completely different than what Miss Fisher had originally said. Now, if we can't get one phrase around a room of 20 students in a matter of a few minutes, how in the world are we supposed to believe that the Bible is the same as it was thousands of years ago? And why in the world, because of that, would I base my life on it? Why would I base my priorities on it? Why would I believe it could enhance my relationships or, or build my finances or help me in parenting my kids? Living in 2021, why would I base my life on an old book that's probably not even the same as when it was written? Not to mention, I'm not trying to pile on, but there's also the issue that the Bible we're told, is full of contradictions. The Bible doesn't even believe the Bible. How do we know, even though it has some helpful teaching, and there are some good morals we can glean from it, and, and some good examples we can live by, we can definitely learn some things, but doesn't it contradict itself? And, and so, learn from it, yes. Teachings and examples, yes. But, but am I really supposed to believe it's, it's the Word of God when it doesn't even agree with itself a lot of time? For example, there's that passage in Luke that says that two blind men came to Jesus. And in Mark, talking about the same story, Mark says it was one blind man. But wait a second. Mark is a common guy. Luke is a doctor. He's very analytical. They're both recording the same event from different perspectives. Could it be that Mark was focused on one guy and not focused on the other when Luke was focusing on both guys? I don't know, but I do know this. Over 40 authors, over a period of 1,500 years, written in three languages from three continents, and all we've got really for the big contradiction is Two guys, not one? If 40 authors had written for hundreds of years from different places about the game tic-tac-toe, 
if they had written about that game, it's a pretty simple game. It'd probably be fairly consistent. We would have all the basic information. There wouldn't be much variance from one author to another. But the Bible is not that simple. The Bible deals with the complex. It deals with our thoughts and our realities, the motivations, our attitudes behind our actions and how we live. It deals with the issues of life. When it comes to the Bible, there's nothing basic here. This book covers the reality of a God who loves us deeply and what that looks like and what it means for us and for our eternity, for the universe, for morality, for spirituality. And this one book, the consistency of the complex is astounding. When a book can cover marriage and parenting, when a book is not afraid to dive into discussing sexuality or the power of obedience, when a book isn't afraid to deal with the toughest issues that we deal with and directly speaks to all of life, it's far more complicated than tic-tac-toe. Forty authors, three continents, 1,500 years. And the contradictions we bring to the table are not that, oh, civilizations are named different things in different places. That's not the case. It's not that cities are misnamed. It's not that movements are erroneously described. It's one guy said there were two and one guy said there was one. So is the Bible really reliable? Is it worth building our lives on? Is it worth looking to for answers and letting it, letting it shape our thinking and our perspective? The Bible we have today, is it even worth picking up? In life, one of the things I think we like is we like to find out what everybody thinks, especially the less I know about it, I want to know what the experts know, or I want to know what the masses think. It's one of the reasons that word of mouth from trusted friends is so important, but also reviews are so important. I remember years ago, I bought, we bought Angie and I a Ford Expedition, and this was right around 2000, somewhere there, years ago, 21 years ago. And it had some mechanical issue. And listen, I'm, I'm not a mechanic. I had a mechanical bypass very early in life, I guess. I know nothing about cars. I can't put any of that together. I don't understand it. Don't want to, don't care. But I have a high respect for people that do understand that stuff. So I took it to the dealership. And the dealership told me the repair was going to be, I think, $1,700. And I couldn't do that. There was no way. So I took it home. And I was trying to figure out what to do. And a good friend said, hey, you should try my mechanic. This was 21 years ago. I still go to the same mechanic. I had one of our vehicles in that mechanic shop this week. Because when I took the expedition to that mechanic, they looked at it and they said, oh, it's a $12 hose. $1,700 at the dealer I'm not going to tell you the name of the dealership, but the way was green because that's all they saw. I, 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 I took it to the dealership. They wanted $1,700. And this mechanic who's trustworthy and honest said, no, man, it's a, it's a $12 hose. And I got there because a friend that I trusted told me about that mechanic. By the way, if you live in Orlando and you're looking for a great mechanic, Tibbetts, they are phenomenal. I've used them 21 years. You can trust them. They're incredible. And they're not paying me to say that. But we, we like the word of mouth from people we trust. We also like reviews. If, if you're in a town on vacation and you're, you're trying to decide where to go to eat, one of the things you're going to do is you're going to look at the reviews. If you're going on Amazon and you're going to buy a product, if one product has over 8,000 reviews and it's 4.8 stars and somebody else sells the same product 
that has nine reviews and it's two stars, which one are you buying from? It's the same product. You're going to buy from the two-star guy because you're trying to help his stars go up. No, no. You're going to buy from the one that has thousands of reviews and solid star ratings because we trust that. So what are the reviews outside of the Bible? It passes the reviews and the accuracy test. The best-selling books of all time, if you look up the list, the, the, the first best-selling book, Don Quixote, 500 million copies. The second best-selling book, all time, A Tale of Two Cities, 200 million copies. The third-selling book of all time, Lord of the Rings, 150 million copies. The fourth, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, 107 million copies. The fifth, The Hobbit, 100 million copies. The most printed books of all time. But you know, all the list, all the references that give that list, they have a little asterisk there. And it says, not counting the Bible. Because number one, Don Quixote, 500 million copies sold. The Bible, 5 billion copies sold. 2.8 billion five-star reviews. Almost one-third of the planet today calls themselves Christ followers that believe the Bible, lean into their faith, trusting that the Bible is in fact the Word of God. This one book, the Bible, has been the most controversial, the most questioned, the most believed, the most scrutinized, and the most lived by book in all of history. Those are overwhelming numbers. Don Quixote, 500 million. Way to go. You're, you're on the way, maybe, to 5 billion. You're not even close, though, to how many the Bible has sold. But those overwhelming numbers, they're not enough to convince us. How do we know it's real? How do we know it's actually true? How do I know in the scramble and the hustle of life and everything we're navigating today, how do I know I can really base my life on this book? In the summer of 1932, Arch Ward was the editor for the Chicago Tribune, and he had this, this column that he would run every week. And the column was simple. It basically was about baseball. At that time, baseball was at its height. It was America's pastime. And, and in this column, you could pick your baseball team, and the column would decide, okay, if you could pick the nine best players to be on your team, who would it be? And he would evaluate different players, and he would analyze the game and, and get all the statistics, and he just had this simple, basic column where he would debate who's the best. It, it was sort of the first of fantasy sports, and it would become what people would talk about in restaurants, what people would talk about at work, that this column, do you agree with the pick? Do you not agree with the pick? In the 1920s, baseball was huge. It was at the peak of its game, but by the 1930s, moving into the 1930s, the Great Depression had hit, and attendance was down by 40% at baseball games. Only two teams would end the year on this particular year in the black. People couldn't afford the price of admission. Life was strained. The economy had collapsed. The stress of life was real, so there was the financial pressure. There was also the distraction pressure of just trying to figure out how to live, and because of that, baseball was sinking. And Arch Ward's little column was the focus. We can't go to the game, but we can talk about the best players. In 1933, the mayor of Chicago, 
knew that the, the World's Fair was coming to Chicago, and he wanted to do something big. He wanted to do something, some type of sporting event that, that would capture people's attention, that would give them a pastime for a moment to distract from all the stress and everything that was taking place. And Arch Ward had an idea, and he gave the mayor of Chicago the idea, and they contacted Major Baseball, and, and they said, let's get the best of the American League and the best of the National League and have a game of the best against the best. Today we know it as the All-Star Game. But back then it began as just a one-time event trying to create some excitement about baseball, which was sinking at the time. The teams were voted on and they were, they were selected. It was the best of the best. But there was one man. There was one man who was invited not because of his skill. There was one man who was invited not because of how great he was. He was invited because of how great he had been. Just because of his name. Babe Ruth. He had 20 years into his career at this point, and now it was nothing like it had been. But just just the name, Babe Ruth, even though he wasn't who he used to be and he didn't have the ability he used to have, they knew people would pay to come and see him and all the other greats. They thought if he's there, people will do what they need to buy the tickets. But also if he's there, newspapers around the country will start to talk about baseball again. At that, ba- at that game in the first inning, Babe Ruth struck out. Writers say that it was so sad that when he would awkwardly swing, often to catch his balance, he would have to put the bat on the ground to hold himself up. He was so far past his prime, and he struck out. But then in the third inning, nobody's sure exactly what happened. Maybe the pitcher was just trying to get a fastball past him, thought he could, because of Babe's age and how long he'd played the game and what he'd seen when he struck out the first time, thought it would be easy. We don't know what happened, but Babe Ruth connected with that pitch, and he knocked it out of the park. And it was the very first home run in an all-star game. It was caught by a man in the stands in the right field. It was the only home run that Babe Ruth would ever hit in an all-star game. And that guy would get Babe Ruth to sign that ball later. Years later, the family that owned that ball decided they needed to sell it. When they sold the ball, they had with it ticket stubs from the game, from the grandparents who'd attended. The grandfather was the one that had caught the ball. He wasn't a grandfather at that time. It was years before. They had the tickets that they purchased to go to the game. They also had a newspaper article from the man's hometown that talked about the hometown boy that caught Babe Ruth's home run in the stands at that very first All-Star game. They had that newspaper article, and then they had a sworn affidavit signed by many people who were there, many people who had observed it, and it had been sealed, signed and sealed and kept. There were three articles of proof, and the baseball signed by Babe Ruth. At the auction, here's what was written about this in the pamphlet at the auction. Simply incredible rarity, which is without question the most documented home run baseball of significance ever to be seen, held, or offered at a public auction. Major League Baseball said this type of documentation for something this old, something before the 1950s, is unheard of. You don't find things from the 1930s with three pieces of documentation that go with it. The bidding started for that baseball at $50,000, and the bidding finished, and the baseball sold at $815,000. 
not just because of a ball with a signature, but because of three pieces of documentation that the experts said was overwhelming evidence. That family had no idea what they had in their hands. Do we have any idea what we really have in our hands? There's something called the Textual Reliability Standards Chart. It's used by literary historians and experts today. It's used by all of academia. It's used by the Smithsonian Institute to verify ancient literature. The Iliad by Homer was written in 800 B.C., The earliest copies we have are from 400 B.C., which is about 400 years later, and we have 643 of those copies. Now, Homer is considered, this is considered the most ironclad piece of ancient literature. Plato, his writings, were written in 400 B.C. The earliest copies we have are in 900 A.D., 1,300 years later, after he wrote them originally. We have seven, that's all, seven of those copies but they're considered to be valuable and historical and accurate. The Gaelic Wars, written by Caesar, was written sometime between 144 B.C. The earliest copies we have are in 900 A.D., a thousand years after they were written, and we have ten copies. The History of Rome, by Livy, was written around 59 B.C. The earliest copies we have are in the 4th century. 400 years later, we have one partial copy. And then... Some that were written in 17 AD, the oldest ones we have are from the 10th century. A thousand years later, we have 19 copies. The New Testament, the New Testament in our Bible, was written between 50 and 100 AD. We have copies that date back to 130 AD, only 50 years after they were written, after the originals were written. Not 400 years, not 1,300 years, not 1,000 years, only 50 years later. We have fragments of those. Some of the New Testament written by scribes in 200 A.D. We have, we have them from a hundred years later, and those we have more fragments. From 250 A.D., 150 years after the originals were written, we have all of the New Testament. Every book in the New Testament, all of it, only 150 years after it was written, we have documents that go back to that age. The documents we have that we found from 400 to 500 A.D., only 400 years after the New Testament was written, we have 24,600. 24,600 of the documents from just 400 years after they were written. So Homer's Iliad, 400 years after it was written, we have 643 copies. The New Testament, 400 years after it's written, we have 24,600 copies. 24,000 more than the Iliad. The New Testament is quoted 32,000 times, 32,000 by 300 A.D. by other sources than the Bible. It it passes the reviews test. It passes the historical test. Also, archaeology proves the reliability of the Bible. This book, the, the process of this book from 400 B.C. to 950 A.D., almost 1,500 years, Hebrew scribes, could not copy a single page of the book unless they had eight years of training on how to be a scribe. Now, parchment would last about 15 years in that time, so the scrolls had to be duplicated over and over again. So for 1,500 years, scribes were required to transcribe by letter 
letter for letter, not word for word. They were try, they, they had to transfer it by letter. Every page was required to be counted. Every letter was required to be counted. Every word on every page required to be counted when they finished the page. And the number of letters and the number of words had to match the original. Every middle word on the page had to match the middle word on the page of the original. Every T was counted, and this page had to have the same number of T's as the original. Every W was counted, and this page from the scribe had to have the same number of W's as the original. Every H was documented, and every H on this page from the scribes had to be the same number as the H's on the original. When you finished a page as a scribe, it went to the editor, and the editor would count all the words and make sure the middle word was the same and make sure the T's and the W and H's were all the same. It had to match the original. If just one letter was off, that page was immediately burned, and the scribe had to start over with that page. Every time the scribe would get to the, the name of God, every single time, there are different names for God in the Hebrew, different names in the Greek, but every time, every time the scribe got to the name of God, they would stop writing, and they would go down and bathe. And they would come back. And when they would come back, they wouldn't write the word God with a used pen or used ink. After they bathed, they had to get a brand new pen and brand new ink. Always. Because the process was treated with such respect. Moses, we're told, and we believe, wrote the first five books of the Bible. And some have said, well, it's the only type of writing like that from that time period. So it, it couldn't be accurate. There's no way that's possible. 1450 BC, no one was writing documents like that. We had no other documents from history from that time period written the way Moses wrote until 1974. The Ebley tablets, tablets were found. An entire library of books, thousands upon thousands of tablets and fragments of, of tablets dated from the time of Moses found in the land of Canaan, the promised land. And historians were struck with the reality that that type of writing did exist in that time and in that place. We have incredible writings of Roman history outside the Bible, but there's no mention of Pontius Pilate. No mention at all of the one who had Jesus on trial until 1961 around Caesarea Israel. A, a column that was part of an amphitheater was unearthed in an archaeological dig. It was dedicated to Caesar, and in that inscription it mentions Pontius Pilate, prefect, governor of Judah. The last part of the book of Daniel, for example, King Belshazzar is the king. But history tells us that Nebuchadnezzar was the last king in that time. There's no mention of Belshazzar until 1853 when Nebuchadnezzar's cylinder was found. And the king writes in there about how he retired for three years to Arabia. And he wraps up the writing in Nebuchadnezzar's cylinder by praying that the sun praying for the son he left in charge, Belshazzar. Job and Psalms told us that the earth was round, but you remember from history, early on we believed it was flat, even though Job and Psalms had said it was round. Job and Psalms taught us that our planet hangs suspended in the universe, but early scholars, the smartest in society, knew that that was ridiculous. They thought our planet is far too big to hang in the universe. It must rest or stand on something until we discovered that our planet does in fact suspend in the universe resting on nothing and held in place only by gravitational pull. In 1947, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in the Qumran Caves south of Israel. 
11 caves alone, there were discovered thousands upon thousands of clay jars that had been sealed with scrolls inside them from the time of when the scribes were writing these scrolls. Every single book in the Old Testament was unearthed in 1947, and all of them predated 125 B.C. One of those books, the book of Isaiah, the scroll is 24 feet long. Isaiah 53, for example, has 166 words in it. And from the scroll that was found 125 B.C. until now, almost 2,100 years later, what you have in your hand today in that scroll, there are 17 letters different. Now, 10 of them, 10 of the 17, are spelling changes because we've changed how we spell words over time. For example, the word honor, H-O-N-O-R, used to be spelled honor, H-O-N-O-U-R. So 10 of the 17 changes are just spelling changes to keep up with how the words change over time. Four of them are a conjunction, the word and that's been added to the text. And then three letters is the word light, and they shall see light. In your hands today, if you have a Bible, in your home today, if you have a Bible, on your device, if you have a Bible, the book Isaiah, compared to the original writing, has two different words from 125 B.C., the word and, because a conjunction was needed, and the word light was added. 24,600 manuscripts within 400 years of when they were originally written. Do you have any idea what you're holding in your hand and the value of it? Dr. Luke, when he writes Luke's Gospel and also the book of Acts, he mentions 32 countries. 54 cities, nine islands by name. He mentions by name and rank 65 Roman, Jewish, and Gentile leaders. Sir William Ramsey, who was an atheist and the son of an atheist, set out to disprove the Bible. He was a wealthy graduate of Oxford. Oxford. And, and the school at that time taught that the Bible was not a historical document. And so Ramsey devoted his entire life to archaeology and disproving the Bible. He started with the writings of Luke, and he went to the Holy Land to set out to disprove the book of Acts. And through what he found, he was astounded at the accuracy that Luke wrote with. In the end, he declared literally, Luke is a historian of first rank. Not merely are his statements fact and trustworthy, but this author should be placed alongside the very greatest of historians. Luke's history is unsurpassed in respect to its trustworthiness. And Sir William Ramsey astounded the world when after 30 years of a journey to disprove the Bible, announcing that he too now was a follower of Jesus. Because the archaeological evidence he devoted his life to and what he discovered just from looking at just one of the books, the book of Acts, in all the Bible. Do you have any idea what you hold in your hand? There's so much more. The Bible is absolutely reliable. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to continue this series and we're going to dig in more and we're going to discover why we should base our life on it and what it means. But maybe right now today, you've heard enough, you know enough, and there's something inside you that says, man, I, I need a relationship with God. Man, I, I got it. I want to know Jesus in a personal way. If that's where you are, I want to invite you to pray with me. If you just bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment. And pray this simple prayer. You can pray it out loud or you can pray it in the quietness of your heart. Matthew 6, the Bible tells us Jesus knows our thoughts. So just pray this prayer. Dear God, I know that I need you. 
Jesus, please come into my life. Please forgive my sin. As best I know how, I give my life to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you just prayed that prayer, I would love to know that. I want to invite you to just grab your phone and shoot me a text. And just send your first name. That's all, your first name. Because I would love to be able to pray for you by name today and throughout this week. I'll get the list of names this afternoon. I would love to be able to pray for you by name. Just shoot me a text, your first name, to 407-487-8311. I also want to be able to send you a free gift. So shoot me the text so I can be praying for you and so we can get that free gift to you. Hey, thanks so much for joining us today. We hope this message encouraged you and inspired you. Would you share it with someone that you're connected with? And also, if you want to be a part of supporting this incredible life-giving movement, you can text C3 Orlando to 77977. You can also go to our safe and secure giving website at givec3.cc. Listen, we love you guys. We're praying for you. We'll see you next week.